And in case you missed it, the uh, Winter Olympics started on Friday, opening ceremonies. I wouldn't be surprised if you missed it because apparently uh, viewership is way down in the last couple Olympics. But yet, still billions of people over the next couple of weeks will watch the Olympics. Nearly 3,000 athletes coming from some 91 countries gathering together in China this year, which is a cause of, of debate and concern. But as you think about those games, the athletes who handle the pressure, who focus and perform the best in each event, they rise above the others, uh, literally on that podium at the end, right? And then they receive the medals to go around their necks on a ribbon. Our passage today is James 1, 12 through 16. James 1, 12 through 16. And it says that a crown of life is available, and the image is equivalent to those Olympic medals. That is what people would have thought of, essentially, back when James was writing, was that there is this award, this tremendous prize available to you, to me. And as we look at this passage here in James 1, 12 through 16, we see it's a kind of surprising truth of how we achieve that position that high standing. Well, look with me as we dig into that today. James 1, verses 12 through 16. Listen with me and live. James 1, 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord promised to those who, who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust, and then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. This is God's word. Father, would you meet us here, open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, that it might be more than ink on paper, pixels on a screen, sound waves on our eardrums, but your word might sink deep down to give us life. We pray with confidence that you'll do that because we come in the name of Jesus. Amen. Those uh, Olympic medals, or well, the awards that people had received in, the, in, in winning the Olympics were not always a, a ribbon with a big old medal around it. They used to be a crown of uh, branches, of laurel branches with the leaves still on them in green. And in fact, since 
the restarting of the Olympics in 1896 in the modern era, almost all of the awards in the beginning every four years had some reference to those laurel leaves, to that crown of leaves. That is literally the image behind what James is talking about here in verse 12. As he says, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord promised to those who love him. The translation there of approved, once he has been approved, kind of makes it sound like something earned, and the whole idea of a medal or an award after an athletic competition contribute to that. But if you notice the overall sense there, even in verse 12, at the end and at the beginning, it speaks to more than performance. In fact, it seems to be referring to something else. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. He will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. It doesn't say to those who jump through the hoops or to those who give enough money or to those who do good deeds, but he says to those who love him. In fact, the, the word approved there, the, the sense of it very often is to be approved or to have been tested and found to pass. And that's the sense here. Even as you look back at the beginning of chapter 1, as we saw a few weeks ago, when James has said, count it all joy when you face trials of all kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. It brings you to maturity. And that's, that's the context you have to have in mind. of When you speak of this crown of life here in James, in God's Word, what we see is that God gives life to those who persevere. In other words, carrying on is victory. Not giving up is how you pass the test. It's not a competition with other people. It's a battle between you and giving up. Between you and quitting. Between you and going some other direction and falling off of a cliff or whatever image you want to picture there. That is how you gain the crown of life. By persevering. Which brings up the question, well then how do you persevere? And that's what we're going to focus on today. You endure all things, first of all, by loving God. You endure, you persevere, you carry on, you don't give up by loving God. And that means that you believe God's promises. That you are believing his promises. Look at verse 12 again with me. It says, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, under testing. Blessed. Is that, that's not that far from counted all joy that he said back in verse 2, right? Considered all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance. Verse 12, he's saying, blessed. Sometimes, you know, the, the more loose translations say happy. 
It's not quite the sense of the word there. Blessed means you're in a better place as opposed to being cursed, where you are in a worse place, right? Blessed, you're in a better place. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. That's not something you see with your eyes either, right? You, you don't look around and go, well, look, he's really suffering and in pain. I can just see the blessing flowing all over him. Do you? It's like a friend of ours when uh, one of our children is one of our first pregnancies and uh, we were f afraid we were going to lose the baby. And there were like all kinds of other things happening at the same time with people being sick and everything. And our friend said, boy, God sure has given you opportunities to trust him. <laughs> and he, the guy, he meant it sincerely, right? And, 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 and we had a good enough relationship that we didn't smack him. Um, <laughs> but but that, you, you don't see that in the moment, right? In the moment, you're like, this just stinks. This is hard. But the perspective, James keeps calling us to, right? To listen that we might live. That what he's calling us to is a different perspective. And this one here is, is, a, is a, a long perspective. Now, the word for perseverance is a compound word, and you can't always judge a word's meaning by the, the words that make it up. Okay, That's not a good way to do it. But here it is, it is appropriate because it's a combination of two words, one that means remaining and one that means under. Perseverance is about remaining under something, under the weight. You know, it's about standing when you want to fall down. It's about getting up when you just want to give up. It's about carrying on when you want to quit. James is echoing Jesus here again, as he often does, where Jesus said in Luke 6.22, Blessed are you when men hate you. That's a long perspective, isn't it? Because it doesn't feel like a blessing. I don't feel like I'm in a better place when someone says something mean to me. I doubt you do either. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. He says in Matthew 5.11-13, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad. Count it all joy, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is not asking you and I to be masochists who delight in pain. That is not what he is saying. And he's not saying to put on a happy face when you're miserable. He's not saying to counsel one another with, God sure has given you lots of opportunity to trust him. Or as I've been annoying my family with, and I told you, right? Consider it all joy. And smack him, right? That's, that's true. And what God is actually doing here is saying, here's the perspective that we need to grow into. This is how we reach maturity. Part of that maturity and perseverance that we're getting is by persevering a little longer each time. By continuing to battle a little further. And that comes from believing God's promises because you can't see it. This is one of those aspects where you have to live by faith. C.S. Lewis said, no one knows how bad 
he is till he's tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is uh, 70 years ago. Now, this is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army, context being world wars, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. That's the upside-down perspective, inside-out, right? The world accuses you of being weak when it gives in out of weakness. When you just battle a little further, you are showing strength. When you resist a little longer, you are growing in your strength, just as you do on the weight machine. Just as you do going on the treadmill a little faster or a little longer or walking a little further or just getting out of bed sometimes. We never find out, C.S. Lewis continues, the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. And do you realize in his temptation? that the devil came at him with things that sounded very reasonable and appealing. Like, hey, eat, right? Like, hey, be ruler of all nations because you know you already are, right? And the devil used Scripture. He came with the Word of God to Jesus, twisting it, of course. So one of the ways, brothers and sisters, that we resist temptations, one of the ways that we show our love for God and, and grow in our love for God is believing his promises and putting them into practice. And saying, yeah, I know that looks really good. Those cookies look really good. But I'm going to be a man of my word and resist. taking that long view of trusting God's promises. First, you have to know his promises, right? You have to dig into the scripture. You have to be familiar with it, as Jesus, of course, was, so that he could counter the devil's lies of twisting scripture with the true intent of the scripture, which is available, and, and not what the world would say is, oh, it's all relative. It means one thing to you. It means no. There's so much of scripture that now including the New Testament for 2,000 years, the Old Testament much longer, we're pretty sure what everything means in the big picture and how to apply it always becomes the wrinkle, right? So when God speaks of sexual immorality and sexual purity, what does that look like in 2022? That's the debate, not that God wants us to be pure, but what does that look like? And we can wrestle with that. And in community, we can get to the truth and have some confidence in it. So we need to know the scripture. That's the, a way that we show our love for God. It also builds our love for God by looking at what he says. You know, one of the ways that we are often tempted to give up and, and to give in is when God's way doesn't seem to work. Have you ever had that? I can't count the number of times I have heard that. You know, I, I, I forgave them and and they were still a jerk. 
It didn't work. I shared the gospel in the presentation that I had memorized, and they laughed at me and called me a moron. It didn't work. I prayed really, really hard, and I was not healed. I did not get the job. They didn't get better. My husband still left me. My loved one still has not come to faith. It didn't work. This, this is huge. It's huge in our understanding. Because when we begin to say it didn't work, we've stopped loving God and have elevated ourselves to God's judge. And, and the biggest problem, it's often, it's just, it's just an error on our part. It's ignorance. We don't know his promises well enough that when the TV preacher says you could have all that you want with a smile and good perfect teeth and a Rolex and everything else, we think, well, that must be true. And we want it to be true so badly, don't we? But if it's true, why is James in the Bible and our, why did our Messiah have to suffer shame and rejection and pain? And why was Paul beaten with rods and left for dead, stoned and drowned and shipwrecked and suffering and had some sort of affliction that he deems as a thorn in the flesh? If, if God wanted us to be fully happy and content and prosperous, in meaning material wealth and resources and everything else, this, why did he put all this stuff in the Bible? And the answer is, well, it's not because he wanted that for us. It's because he wanted us to love him and know him. And so false promises of health and wealth and prosperity, false combinations of the church and nation and ethnicity, they show we don't really understand God's word. And if, and, if, and if we're not willing to listen when someone challenges that, it says, you know, it's maybe more about us and our convictions than it is about God's word. That our love for God begins with believing his promises, looking at his promises, knowing his promises. And to do that, though, you have to believe in his goodness. You have to base it on his goodness. He says in verse 13 here in James 1, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. Uh, literally there, it's, it's God is, is without temptation. God is untemptable by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. It, it, you flip it around. He wants what's best for you. He wants what is good for you because he is good. And that goodness would include, would include his goodness 
includes your suffering. That's not an easy truth. But it is a biblical truth. And it started at the fall. The reason there is suffering at all in the world is because Adam and Eve sinned. And God in His grace and mercy, wanting what is good for us, said, this can't continue. You can't go your own way and think it's okay because you will only find life with me, God says. And so I will make it hard for you when you try to go your own way. In fact, you will go your own way, and so the end of it all will be death, which is suffering, is it not? And which every false teacher succumbs to, no matter how great their faith, no matter how big their wallet or how big their car or their pocketbook or whatever else, they will all die. It breaks down. How do you explain death? And you explain it by saying, God works it for good. That's, that's hard. That's hard. But it is what James says in verse 2 through 4. Count it all joy. <clears throat> He's, Paul says it in Romans 8, 28. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. I don't think that's an accident that that's in there. That we have to love God to be able to believe that, and we have to believe He's good to love Him. Those things go together and they reinforce each other. If you don't believe in God's goodness, if you aren't committed to Him above all else, you're not going to experience suffering as a test or any other test. You're going to experience it as evil. You're going to experience it as <clears throat> evil because it's derailing your plans. And your plans are the ultimate good for the universe. Right? I know my plans are. I don't know why God just doesn't follow along with me. I mean, come on, right? <clears throat> Do you feel like that? I feel like that, right? And then he's like, no. <laughs> I don't think he laughs like that. That's how it feels, though. But really, it's the father disciplining the son. Saying, oh, this really does hurt me more than it hurts you. But you go in that direction. I can't let you keep going that direction. Our plans are not the ultimate good. They're often actually very bad. What God is asking for here is basically priorities. That we would seek God above all else, putting him first, even above our own pleasure, our possessions, our position, our performance, our lives. But that's what it would mean to love God. And what happens is that we, we have a tendency when things aren't going well that we, we attack him personally or his character. You know, if he was good, he wouldn't do this. insulting or abusing God as many unbelievers do. Here's the thing. If you've ever had that moment in your married life where you're really close to hating your spouse, or you're just really, really, like you just wish they would just go away for a little while, or, you know... You're just fuming and angry and 
if, if we as human beings, even as Christians, can, can have that kind of attitude toward our spouse, who we have professed to love, you know, honor, cherish, all those kind of things, right? But if there are moments in our lives when those things happen, it's certainly true that, that we could treat God that way. And the antidote is very similar in a marriage as it is in our relationship with God, which is to talk about our feelings. Rather than accusing, we say, God, I don't understand. I feel like screaming at you, God. If you read the Psalms, that's a lot of what's going on there. How long, O oh Lord? You read the book of Revelation. The martyrs are crying out, how long? That's very different than the accusation of you should have. It's the way you guard your heart. Lord, I don't get it. And the same as in marriage, you find things to be thankful for and gratitude. Cultivate it. Yeah, God, I don't understand the suffering. I really wanted that, and, and, and it's not happening. But I know you're good, Lord, because I read your word, and I see this, or I see in my children them doing that, or, or, or I just had an apple cobbler, right? You guys know that one, right? If, if you're new here, I'll explain it to you later. But uh, apple cobbler is really, really good. If you're struggling to thank God, find something like that. I mean, seriously. Peaches. Sorry, vegetarian people, but a juicy steak. Piece of red meat. Those are things to be thankful for. There's so much more. Those are just kind of silly things. But that's what loving God means you're believing his promises and it's based on his goodness. So that means you're always going to be able to find things to thank him for. And yet you're also going to be struggling with him being in charge when you want to be and I want to be, right? And so to, to, to express part of his goodness actually is to, that he can handle whatever you have to say, by the way. And he's not going to judge you or smack you down as too often we do in our marriages or parenting or whatever. That, that, that God can handle that and he wants to hear it from you in your struggles, in your wrestling, to just say that to him. To bring it to him. Read the Psalms. Just go through them. Especially the, the second half there, starting around maybe in the 60s, Psalm 69, Psalm 73, Psalm 130. Read those as, as committed believers wrestle with loving God. So that, that, that loving is you believe in his promises, is based in his goodness, and from there you can commit to God that, that you would do the second thing that is necessary for perseverance, which is living for God. So loving God and then living for God, and that means, first of all, that you take responsibility. It starts with a commitment to take responsibility for your sin. To not make excuses, not blame others, not be even defensive or work on reducing your defensivity. That's not a word, I just made it up. But take responsibility for your sin. Look at verse 14. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. 
the language here is, is very colorful and interesting. Uh, just to clarify a couple of things. Number one, lust there is, is desire. It's, it's strong desire. It does not, as we today typically think of lust, as a sexual immorality thing. It, it could be just, it's an inordinate desire, not necessarily in that category of sexual sin. It's just a strong desire. You're, you're carried away by your own desire. And when your desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. But even more interesting, I think, are these two words about uh, what happens when you're, te you're tempted. You're carried away and enticed. Carried away has this sense of uh, being dragged along with maybe some initial resistance. You know, I picture you're in the tug of war, right? And you're the, the anchor person. You're at the end of the tug of war. You know, get rope, people on that side, people on this side. You got the flag in the middle of the rope and you're trying to win. You know, you're pulling and you're the anchor person. You got your heels dug in, you know, and you're, ugh, and you're pulling on the rope and you're just getting pulled. You know, you've got two grooves in the ground as, as you're being pulled. That's, that's the picture here of being carried away. You're trying to fight the pull of gravity. You're pulling, uh, and the strength is it's too much for you. But being enticed is, is, is also there. And that is the language of bait. Like as in fish, bait, lures, uh, maybe clickbait. You're familiar with that, are you not? Are you on the internet? Yeah, you see the headline, uh, NFL world shocked by Tom Brady news. You know, and two weeks ago it was, yeah, he had a hangnail or something, you know. More recently he retired. But that, that kind of clickbait that says, there's something really interesting that, that you don't want to miss out on, FOMO here. So it's vague enough that you'll click on it and usually it's just something you probably already knew. Or it's worse. It's enticing aspect is, is what Peter talks about in 2 Peter chapter 2. He's talking about false teachers in 2 Peter 2. And, and they have this bad doctrine, heretical beliefs, and, and they're leading people astray by appealing to their desires, the desires of people. And in a sense, what this, this is saying, and it's echoed by 2 Peter, it's also echoed by Jeremiah 17, is that our hearts are the problem. You know, please don't blame anyone or anything for you giving into temptation. It is your choice. We are responsible for our sin. It, it's hard. Circumstances make it harder, right? But in the end, it is our choice to sin. We are carried away and enticed. We are lured in by our own sin and it leads to death. And, and the Old Testament says it this way in Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all else. We're lured away, enticed. <laughs> we, were, we were on vacation a few years ago in Galveston with family down on the, the Gulf of Mexico. And we went crabbing. Galveston's an island there, and there's a bay on one side, the Gulf is on the other. And we went crabbing. I had never gone crabbing before. And so we're there in like a marshy area, and, and there's just water, and there's reeds, and everything popping up, those little grasses and stuff. And I'm like, well, what do we do? And, and the person who was taking us, uh, I think it was Julia's stepbrother, brought like trays of chicken, like out of the store. Um, like chicken breasts and stuff just in the package. I was like, 
what? So you cut it up and you tie it on a piece of fishing line or string or something, right? And you drop it in the water while you hold the string somewhere in the shallows as you wander around. And sure enough, you get this. And you feel it pulling, right? And it's pulling, it's pulling. And it's like, and you're like, oh, it's a crab. And he's like holding on to it. And you just take your net and you go, whoop, thanks, Mr. Crab. You throw him in the bucket. And as we're doing this, and we're just catching crabs, and I'm like, this is like crazy. And, and I'm thinking about the crabs from their perspective. Right? They're sitting there in this marshy water, and they're like little bits of dead fish, right? some bones. Ooh, a dead fly. That's a nice snack. Right? And then it's like, whoa! Chicken from heaven! Look at that! No, it's mine. It's mine. You know, like that seagull in, in one of those the Nemo movies or whatever. It's like, it's mine, 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 mine. And they're like holding on to it. It's like, dude, did you stop and think for a second? Chicken doesn't fall out of the sky, man. He's like, this one did, and I'm eating it. There's the net. He's dragged away, right? He's, he's, and now he's fighting. He's like, ah, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And one of them was... One of them was really fighting. We put it on the counter overnight, and he got loose. We couldn't find him, and he was like hiding under the microwave. Like, <laughs> he didn't want to be there. Imagine that. Chicken from heaven. That's silly. I think crab brains are pretty, pretty small. I think mine's a lot bigger. But man, I have chicken from heaven moments, don't I? <laughs> Do you have chicken from heaven moments? You're like, whoa. Something pops up on your screen as you're browsing the web or in your junk mail folder, and you're like, oh, oh, and you linger too long. Nice boy enters your life. He doesn't share your values, and you're like, oh, this is the boy God wanted for me. He doesn't know Jesus, and he's not really interested in what I believe in, but, I mean, he's here, right here. This picture pops up. Oh, you know, that's, wow. And you can even think. And you linger too long. And then you say, well, after you come to your senses, right? What was I thinking? Well, but, you know, I was tired, and, you know, it just kind of came up upon me, and, you know, just give me, a, give me some slack, you know, you know, all those things as we make excuses in those moments, all the things that come into our hearts and our minds are really very much about our pride. Because we want to believe we're not as stupid as a crab, and we're not going to fall from chicken from heaven and get trapped, but we are, and we do. And what the key to it is, if we're going to live for God, we take responsibility for our sin and then we give ourselves away. You've got to give away yourself. That, that's verse 14, he says, this is about desire. Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust, his own strong desire. And when that strong desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. It is desire for something more than God that leads us astray. In other words, chicken from the heavens is anything 
that would have us turn away from God or what God would have for us to it. Anything that becomes more important than God. And so the solution is to, to get full in another area, right? If those crabs had been eating well, they would not be tempted by chicken from heaven, right? This is this, is this the, one of the big keys to overcoming temptation is to be full and satisfied in the God-given areas of your life. To live for him is a double-edged sword. To say, I'm going to live for him, and then actually to live for him and to find that your, your desires begin to line up more and more with his desires. That you build a sensitivity to things that would tempt you, the things that are wrong, and you begin to, to say, oh, no, I got to, no, that's, that's not attractive to me at all. Jesus relativized all of our desires, all of our aspirations, everything that we want to find meaning and purpose and hope and all, all that we want, so to speak. He relativized everything by saying that, that you're really blessed when you're humble, that you're really blessed when you're poor in spirit, you're really blessed when you attempt to make peace not fight. You're really blessed even when you are persecuted and mocked for his name's sake. In the midst of those beatitudes in Matthew 5, 3 to 16, he says this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Do you hear what he's saying? That, that you won't be satisfied if you're not hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That you'll get the chicken from heaven and you'll chow down on it and you'll find suffering and misery of one form or another, even death, and you'll be in a really good crab boil. Oh, wait, sorry, you got distracted. That was good. That's what we did with the crabs, if you're paying attention, sorry. Not eating people, we're eating the crabs. But that's the equivalent, is it not, of, of what we do. If we, are, if we are not hungering and thirsting for righteousness... Everything else is going to be unsatisfying, even if it looks good, even if it tastes good, it's not going to agree with our stomach. It, it's going to kill us. That's what he's saying. You know, when it when it's brings forth death after it's been brought forth and conceived, you're not going to be satisfied unless you are most hungry and thirsty for righteousness, which means basically right with Godness. You're not going to be satisfied unless your hunger and thirst are for this relationship with God. This is something that no one can take away or steal. It is something that is not touched by anything on earth. It will not rust or perish or spoil or fade. It doesn't need an alarm system. It doesn't need a ring doorbell to keep a track of it. It doesn't need motion detectors. It is more precious than gold and tastes better than honey. And it's the only thing that's really going to satisfy you. You know where it says in Jeremiah that the heart is desperate, deceitful, and wicked. Before that he says, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind, including himself, and makes flesh his strength whose heart turns away from the Lord. He'll be like a bush in the desert, will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt 
without inhabitant. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by water, extends its root by a stream, and will not fear when the heat comes. By its leaves will be green. It will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. That if we delight ourselves in the Lord, even in those hard times, even in the struggles, even in the losses, we will have a deep root. We will have satisfaction even in the midst of grief. That's the hope that's talked about throughout the scriptures. That, that we know this is a temporary situation. We know it stinks and we can own that. We can acknowledge how hard it is and still carry on. Still keep moving forward uh, to the crown of life. Because that's, that's what we're made for. You know, I like that picture in Jeremiah of, of the roots by the stream. It's also in Psalm 1. It yields its fruit in season. I, I like that picture because it draws on this water that we need, this water, the thirst for living water, moving water, life-giving water. And you know, Jesus referred to himself that way to the woman at the well, the sinful woman at the well in John chapter 4. And he said, you drink from this water and you'll be satisfied. Yes. Not that well water. You need me, Jesus says. As sinful as you are, as broken as you are, you keep finding, you keep going from one relationship to another relationship. To this woman, he says at the well, essentially. But if you want real satisfaction, come to me, Jesus says. I will give you the living water. That's essentially what James is talking about here. That God would give to us satisfaction, peace, contentment, no matter what's going on around us, because you were made for God. You were created in his image. He made you for himself to find your ultimate meaning and purpose in Him. You won't find it anywhere else except in Him. And everything else will come after that. So give yourself away to Him. Give yourself up to Him. And you'll find actually that you find yourself. That the lies about who you thought you were and what you wanted will fall away. You'll become even more human, even more solid on your own. Because the thing is, you'll find that that's what you were meant to do. That you will not actually lose anything by giving yourself up to Christ, but you will gain everything. As Paul would say, I count it all loss for the surpassing glory of knowing Christ my Lord. You see, this crown of life that James talks about has come to you and is offered to you by the one who obtained it with a crown of thorns. The one who offers you life is the one who experienced death. Not just merely physical, but the eternal death due to you for your sin. This is the God who gives more grace, James 4, 6. This is the one who has made you and has given himself away for you that you might find yourself by giving yourself away to him. It is this beautiful picture of what it means to get the crown of life to obtain it, loving God and living for God.
I might have told you this story before, but it's just so, so good. And it's Winter Olympics time. Sean White, the snowboarder, long career at 33 years old, right? Other people are like half his age right now. He's, he's retiring this year. So it's appropriate to, to remind you of this story if you've heard it. He has three Olympic gold medals in the half pipe snowboarding. And this is his fifth and final Olympics. I, I don't think he's a Christian. That, that's not the point. But his first two gold medals, 2006 and 2010 Olympics, this is a good picture of, of what we're talking about here. It's a contrast because in snowboarding, in the finals, you get two runs and your best score is your score. Right, so the way it worked out in 2006 and 2010 for Sean White is that he got to go first in the first round and last in the last round. So on his first run in 2006, he had the highest score of anyone even after they went twice. So on his last run, he had the gold wrapped up. He could have just like walked down the slope and gone to the podium. He could have gotten one of those silver saucers. You remember those? From, he could have sledded down on one of those. He could have just belly flopped down. He could have pranced and danced. He could have done anything down that. He didn't have to go at all. He had won. It was locked up. But instead, what he did was a kind of victory lap, which is what uh, contestants in these sports often do. They just kind of do silly tricks all the way down on their snowboard. They scrape an edge and throw snow up on the crowd. <laughs> you know, it's a victory lap, right? That's what he did in 2006 with his first gold medal. In his second gold medal, having matured for a few more years now, right? He was in the same position. He had the highest score first run. Everyone else went. No one beat it. Now he could do the same thing. He could do anything he wants. In 2010, you know what he did? He set the world record on his second unnecessary run because he was set free. He had nothing to lose. He already had the crown. It was his. And so he just was himself. And he went down and did without pressure what he knew he could do and what he had practiced before. And he did insane tricks, set a record 48.4. I didn't look it up yet. I'm not sure if that's still the world record. 48.4 out of 50. Brothers and sisters, because of Jesus and the crown of thorns, you have the crown of life. You don't have to earn it. You can love the Lord who's given it to you because you have loved him. You, you love this Lord and then live for him. And, and just for him. Live for him, not for yourself. For him. Who cares what anyone thinks about you? Who cares what they say about you? Who cares whether it works or not? Because you know you've got it wrapped up. You're going to be on the winner's podium at the end. And God is going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Because he's only looking at you in Jesus. And Jesus has already won it. He has obtained it for you. So you can love God and trust his promises that he is good. And you can live for God. You can take responsibility for your sin. Give yourself away. We're going to take the Lord's Supper here in a minute. It's a symbolic meal, but it actually offers real benefits for us. It gives you real strength to those who hunger 
and thirst for righteousness. It's a symbol of your love and your commitment to live for Jesus. Right? And so that's one of the reasons why we ask only people who are members in good standing and profess their faith in Jesus to take it because it is a symbol of your love for Jesus and that you are committed to living for him, not perfectly. But it's also this. It is a symbol of his love for you and that he lived for you. Those two things give you the crown of life. Those two truths together give you the, the perseverance, the endurance to see you through to the end. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love for us and that you would meet us here in this place at this time. And we ask you to bless, to provide, to strengthen, to give hope. We pray in Jesus' name.